All right, if you want to take your Bibles with me, we're going to go back to 1 Peter this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1. We took a few weeks off during the Easter season, and we're going to return now to our study in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we have gotten down to verse 13, and Peter has spent the first half of this chapter expounding on the great gift of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, how we've been chosen as part of God's eternal plan, we've been given a lively hope of the future, and it's a lively hope because we look forward to life, not death. Death is just the portal for believers into eternal life. We also know that in life we have waiting for us an eternal inheritance, not corruptible, not that will not fade away. It's not reserved on this earth, but it's reserved in heaven. And all of that is guaranteed not because of what we've done and not because we can hold on to it, but because it is given to us and secured through the power of God. And without his power being involved, we would be hopeless. We would have no hope. But because it is of his power, we know that it will come to pass. And so that is the lively hope of our salvation. And with that hope, Peter has told us that even though we may suffer in this life, we can still rejoice because we have the Lord's presence, because we have a good end coming, and even in this life, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Even our suffering is part of God's plan to accomplish something good in us. That's what he's promised. And so in this salvation, we can rejoice even in the worst of times. And so we've seen all of that about our salvation. And the last time we were in First Peter, we saw that This salvation is something that the prophets prophesied about, but they didn't understand fully. And the angels want to know more fully about it because they don't get to experience it personally. And so it's something of great value, of great interest to those who have gone before, to those who are above. And we get to experience it personally. And so when we get to verse 13, Peter is still in this mode of our great salvation But he changes his tone a little bit. Up to this point, he's been informing us how great this salvation is, reminding us what we have in Christ. And now, because of all of that, he changes to a tone of command, our response. And so we're going to read about our response in chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. So if you go to verse 13 with me, we'll start there. And the Bible says in 1 Peter 1, starting verse 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at that revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Let's take a minute to have some prayer, have a minute of prayer, and then we'll look at our message this morning. Lord God, we know that you have given us this word as absolute truth. It is your mind revealed to us, your will revealed to us. And so as we study this passage together today, I pray that you would open our minds and hearts to hear, to receive that which you would challenge us with 
that comes from your truth and is part of your truth. Father, we can't understand without your Spirit, so send your Spirit into us. Help us to be ready to receive what he has to teach us today. Remove the distractions, I pray, from us so that we can pay attention to your word and to these lessons. Lord, we need your help, even in reading your word and understanding it. So we ask for your help now, and I ask for your help as I preach. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. Give me power to speak. Give me truth to speak from your word. Give me boldness to proclaim the truth of your word so that we might truly hear from you and be challenged by your word today. And Lord, we ask that you would accomplish all that you have planned through this time and in this time. And may you receive the glory and honor in all that we do now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, you get to verse 13, and Peter has been talking about salvation. He's still talking about salvation, but instead of describing it for us, Peter starts to give us some commands as far as our response. Because we have such a great salvation secured for us, such a lively hope, such a future to look forward to in what is secured in Jesus on our behalf, what is to be our response? And that comes in verses 13 through 16. The response of one who has this great salvation is to serve the Lord in holiness, to give ourselves over to holiness. Verse 15, Peter's very direct, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. God has called us to salvation. We saw that back in verse 2. And because he has called us to salvation, he has also called us to holiness. That is our response. That is the end product, if you will, of our salvation. That's why God saves us. Not to give us a better life, not to make life easier, not just so that we can go to heaven, but to make us holy people so that we can reflect the character of God in our lives on this life and be able to share that message of the gospel with others who need to hear it. And so that is his purpose for us, is holiness. That's what we've been called to. That should be our response, and it's the only acceptable and appropriate response. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus was teaching his disciples and others, and he told them about the parable of the faithful steward. At the end of that parable, he says this, "...unto whom much has been given..." much more shall be required. In other words, those who have received great blessings have a great privilege, but with that great privilege comes great responsibility. And the great responsibility we have before God because of the salvation he gave us in Jesus Christ is to become holy people. That's his call for us. We've been given an abundant life and overflowing blessings as the children of God. And so what is to be our response? Peter says, become holy as God is holy. Become like our Father who gave us that new life. And so if that's to be our response, then it should be vitally important for all of us who are true believers to understand what it means to be holy. What is Peter saying here? What does the Bible mean when it says, be ye holy as God is holy? Now, that's a serious thing, to be holy. 
Because if we're saved, we already understand that we have no way to make ourselves holy. In fact, even after we're saved, we can't make ourselves more holy. So we look at that statement and we think, well, that in, in our flesh, in our strength, is an impossible thing. We can't become holy. And that's the whole point. Because just as we have to submit ourselves and surrender our will and our power and our, 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 all of what we are to Christ for him to save us, to give us new life, in the same way, we have to surrender all that we are and give up ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit so that he can make us holy. So salvation doesn't just start with surrender. It's a life of surrender and surrender to the work that God wants to do in us. And this is what he wants to do. He wants to make us holy people. And so Peter here in verses 13 to 16 makes it imperative that those who enjoy fellowship with God and salvation will live so as to reflect the holiness of the one who saved us. So we've been called to holiness. In this passage, Peter is saying that the same God who has called us to salvation has also called us to holiness. Now, this isn't a new call for followers of Christ. Jesus himself, back in Matthew chapter 5, his very first sermon, in verse 48, he said, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, the word perfect here means complete, mature. It's very similar to the word holy. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying. Be holy as God is holy. Be perfect, complete, mature as God is complete and perfect in his character. Paul echoed this same call to holiness in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. He said, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. God didn't choose us because we were good people. Because we were blameless, God chose us in our sin. He saved us from our sin, and he wants to cleanse us from any sinful influence and sinful effects in our lives. Now, eventually, our body will be redeemed and we'll have the curse of sin removed. But until that time, we have the struggle of the pull of our flesh, or what we'll call the lust of our flesh, trying to get us to do things other than holiness, And we also have the Spirit in us, the Spirit of God, who is doing His work to move us toward holiness. And so as we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit, then we follow that path of holiness, if you want to call it that, that God is trying to lead us on to become more like Him, more perfect in our character, more mature in our spiritual understanding, in our spiritual nature, more holy. Now, if that's what we've been called to, then we need to understand what it actually is. So we need to define holiness. One commentator said this, holiness is the chief attribute of God which defines all the rest of his attributes. I think that's a good way to describe or define holiness. Holiness is perfection of all other attributes of God. Holiness means that God is as good as he can get. He can't be more perfect. He is already perfect in all of his attributes. 
He's perfect in his love. He's perfect in his mercy. He's perfect in his justice. He's perfect in his wrath. He can't get better. That's why God cannot change, because where would he go? Would he get worse? That's impossible, because God is perfect. God is holy. And so holiness defines his perfectness in all of his character traits. It's a reference to the perfection and the completeness, or we'll use the word perfect maturity of every single character of God. And that is what we've been called to, to become mature, perfectly mature in all of our characteristics. That's what Peter says. We are to be holy as God is holy. So the understanding holiness comes down to understanding maturity and perfection. And that is gauged in our lives as we look at God and see where he is on that scale, and he's at the utmost top. It can't get any higher. And then we are somewhere way below that. Because none of us are perfect in our character. None of us are completely mature in our spiritual growth or in our spiritual nature. God is still doing that work in us to make us more like Jesus Christ. The primary Old Testament word for holiness actually means to cut or to separate. So fundamentally, holiness is a cutting off or a separation from what is unclean and from that which would keep us from being perfectly mature in our character. Any kind of sinful influence. Now, obviously, that would define God's nature because God is totally separate from sin. God does not sin. There is no sin in him. He has no association with sin. And so that's what he's called us to, to become mature, sinless, perfect in our character. Now, again, we think that, we hear that, and we think, well, I can't do that. I'm a human being. I'm flawed. We still struggle with the sin nature. Okay? That's true. We won't receive that perfect, mature nature in its completion until we get to heaven. But if that's what we've been called to, then that should be the road or the journey that we're on in this life as we move toward that goal. And so that's what Peter is saying here. And he says the word holiness, again, using the Old Testament foundation, which this is what Pete, how Peter would understand this word because he only had the Old Testament. He said, be mature, be complete, be cut off or separate from anything that would keep you from becoming perfect in your spiritual nature. Now, interestingly, the Greek word for the church is ekklesia. Ekklesia was a Greek word that was used very commonly in the Greek culture, and it was used as uh, for a group that was just called out to meet. It wasn't specifically talking about the church. It could be applied to any kind of specific meeting where people left their daily lives, gathered together for a specific purpose, and that was called ecclesia. That word was applied to the church specifically as the church began using that word because the church was a group called out from everyday life to gather to worship the Lord. Now, that was the physical aspect of it, is they're gathering 
to meet to worship the Lord. But in a spiritual way, believers have been separated from the world. We've been called out of the world to become holy people. We, the church as a whole is not about meeting in this building. The church is about being different, cut off, separate from sin that would keep us from becoming holy as God is trying to do in us. And so when we think about this word holiness, we have to include this idea of separation or being separate from something that is the opposite of holiness. And obviously we're talking about sin. So anything that would influence us towards sin and away from holiness, then we should be cut off or separate from. So that's the meaning of this word. And that's why Paul tells believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, wherefore, come out from among them, talking about the, the world and unbelievers. He says, be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. So there's a separation factor that is included in this idea of holiness. The context of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what I just read, is Paul's explanation of why believers should not be partnered or joined together with unbelievers. Earlier in that passage, he says, you should not bond together or have a union with unbelievers. And he says, can Christ have fellowship with Belial or Satan? You can't do it. They're total opposites. He said, in such a way, believers and unbelievers in that sense are total opposites because believers should be moving toward holiness. Unbelievers are still caught in their sin. And so you can't have true fellowship between the two because we're on different paths. And so there's a separation that has to happen. Now, that separation does not mean, well, if that guy's unsaved, I'm not going to have anything to do with him. Okay? Is that what Christ did? No, Christ came to earth He sought out those people that were separated from God by sin. He didn't become like them and do the things that they did, but he went to them to give them the truth that could free them from that bondage. And so that's the separation that we see in holiness, is that we don't live and become like the people in the world who are unsaved and live for themselves and glorify Satan in everything they do. We don't become like that. We separate from that. But we don't ostracize the people. We go to them with the truth. But there's a separation here in the quality, the the spiritual quality of the lifestyle that Paul alludes or that Peter alludes to. So Peter is saying here then that as God is different and separated from holy and ungodly people and practices of the world, so should we be as believers, totally different. And we see that same command from Paul in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, there's that word, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He says, that's just reasonable. Remember, Peter says, this is the response. And Paul says, it's our reasonable response for us to become holy. In verse 2, he goes on, and be not conformed to the world. That's the opposite of becoming holy. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we're to be seeking out and moving toward that which God calls perfect. 
holy. Peter uses this same idea in verse 14 in this chapter that we read this morning, where he says, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Not being the same person that you were before you were saved. Not living the same way. Before you used to live for your lust, now you live for Christ. Before you were motivated by self, now you're motivated by the Spirit and the glory of God. So it's a totally different life. And therefore, it should look different. It should be different. So how do we avoid becoming like the world as we move toward holiness? By becoming more spiritually mature. Maturity in our nature, maturity in our character, but it's not something we do, it's something that God does in us as we submit ourselves to him. God makes us less like the world, more like himself. So that's the the command that Peter gives us. So for us, becoming holy is a journey toward becoming more spiritually mature in every aspect of our character. And, And that's what Peter says here. We become more spiritually mature or more holy in every aspect of our character so that our actions become less sinful and less like the actions of the world and more holy and more in tune with the nature and character of God. Now, we will never reach that perfection, as I mentioned, until we get to heaven. But we should always be moving in that direction. That should be our goal. In fact, that's the goal that Paul describes in Philippians chapter 3 on this journey. He says in verse 12, verses 12 through 16, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I am also apprehended of Christ Jesus. Now, that's a difficult verse, but basically what he's saying is, God has saved me to make me holy. He says, I haven't gotten there yet. I'm not perfect. And believe me, if Paul didn't get there, we're not there. Okay? But he says, I'm not there yet. But I continue to follow after that goal. So that one day, hopefully, When the Lord takes me home, I will attain that goal perfectly. But then he goes on. He says, brethren, I count not myself to apprehend it, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. That's the old life. That's all the stuff that Paul was proud of before he was converted. It's the same for us. That's the old life. That should be put away. He says, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before. What's before us? Becoming holy in the image of Jesus Christ. Being acceptable in God's sight through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And he says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, let us therefore, as many as be perfect, that's the word mature, be thus minded. In other words, that's what mature people realize about their Christian lives. That's our goal. We move toward holiness as God does his work in us. He says, let us therefore, as many as be mature, perfect, be thus minded. And if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. In other words, those people who think Christianity is about enjoying my life now because I don't have to worry about going to hell later, there's more to it than that. Holiness is our reasonable response, and it's the goal to which we should be living 
In verse 16, Paul goes on, he says, Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. And so he's saying that this journey of holiness is not going to be completed in this life, but it's where we should be moving. That's the direction we should be heading, holiness. And if we're truly growing in spiritual maturity, we will understand that true spiritual growth and true growth in holiness is God's purpose for us. That's why he saved us. And as he makes us holy, then he's able to glorify himself through our lives. And if that's not our goal, if that's not what we want our salvation and our Christianity to be, then Paul says, God will show you otherwise. You don't get to define your own salvation. You don't get to define your own life. You don't get to define your own journey. God defines that. In verse 16, he says, holiness only happens as we continue to live by the same rule, minding the same thing. In other words, letting the Spirit change us and guide us along that journey through the revealed truth of God that he's given us in his word. That's the process. Now, the Holy Spirit, as he does his work, is not going to make us more like the world. That's what he took us out of. He's not going to make us more like sin. He's not going to have us do more sinful practices or serve ourselves or live in self-satisfaction and self-gratification. That's what he saved us from. And so as the Holy Spirit moves us toward holiness, he makes us less like the world and more like Christ, more perfect. In fact, not just perfect, but the nature that he is instilling in us, the character that he is building in us through his work is superior in nature to the world. It has to be, because God is superior to everything else that he created. And he is especially more superior in every way than any part of his sinful creation. And so the nature that God wants to build in us is a superior nature, a superior character to anything that the world can have or create. Because God is transcendently superior to everything that this sinful world represents and stands for. Now, when we talk about holiness, a lot of people will say, well, holiness is about the inside. It's not about the outside. God sees my heart. That's all that matters. Okay? And that's true. Okay? Because what's on the inside is what produces what comes on the outside. Right? Jesus said that. Matthew chapter 7, he says, By your fruits you shall know them. He said, Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. So in other words, it's the inside that matters the most. God has to do his work within us before the outside looks right. And that's why a salvation, if we want to put quotes around that, a salvation that is basically founded on just becoming a better person outwardly is not salvation. First, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells us in verse 17 that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All the old has passed away. All things have become new. So it's not just reforming the outward appearance. That's not salvation. It is God changing us, making us completely new inside. So that's where it starts. 
And that's why Peter says here that because you've already been changed on the inside in the first 12 verses through salvation in Christ, now he says the outside should follow in holiness. So it is about the outside. It is about the outward actions and performance. And he makes that very clear in verse 15. Look at verse 15, what he says. And he says, be holy in what? All manner of conversation or conduct. Now, conduct doesn't happen on the inside. Conduct is our outward actions. And so Peter is talking about our outward actions here. So we can't just say, well, you know, God is, you know, he's, he's making me better on the inside. I've submitted to him, to him on the inside. My spirit is surrendered to God. So it really doesn't matter what happens on the outside. The inside's all that matters. Peter contradicts that. He says, because God is holy, because he's called you to holiness, and he's already saved you, he's given you the inside that needs to be there in the first place, then that holiness should come out. It should show in how you live. And he says, in all manner of conversation, that means every aspect of life. There's nothing that is taken out of that equation. Every single part of our life is part of our conversation or conduct. And so Peter says all of it needs to be holy. Now, Peter's very interested in this topic of outward holiness, and I think he believes it's very important because in this one book alone, he addresses it at least three more times, and he uses this same word conversation or outward conduct. In chapter 2, verse 12, he says, having your conversation, your outward conduct, honest among the Gentiles. That's not the inside. That's the result of the inside. And it's what shows outwardly. In in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he's talking to wives and husbands, and he says, Likewise, wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, talking about the husband, if any husband obey not the word, they also may without the word be be won by the conversation, the outward conduct of the wife. And he goes on, while they behold your chaste conduct with fear. So the conduct becomes the testimony of a believing wife to an unbelieving husband. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says this, having a good conscience, that whereas the world, they may evil, uh, speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conduct in Christ. Remember what the Pharisees said about Jesus when he went and sat with sinners and gave them the truth? Oh, he's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He goes and sits with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. See, they were only focused on the outside. In fact, everything about the Pharisees was outward. That's why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. You might look on the outside, on the inside, it's all corrupt. Well, Peter is saying, because the inside has been redeemed, renewed, The outside should follow. So our outward actions and lifestyle are to reflect the holiness of God nature. We can't say God is only concerned about our hearts. God is concerned about our actions. Because our actions follow our hearts. And if our outward living doesn't reflect God's holiness that's supposed to be inward, then there has to be a problem with our inward condition that we refuse to acknowledge. So yes, 
That's why the Bible tells us God judges us by our works because the outward conduct reflects the inward condition. If God's principles of holiness then are what define our character and attitudes, then our performance will follow. Now the question then comes up, and Peter addresses this, why should we be holy? And in verse 16 he says, because it is written, be holy for I am holy, because God is holy. That's why we're to be holy. He's called us to be his children. He's called us to be his heirs. He's put us in his family. We are become part of the body of Christ. So because that's his character, that's what should be our character. Warren Wearsby put it this way. He said, the argument here is logical and simple. Children inherit the nature of their parents. We are partakers of God's divine nature and therefore ought to reveal that nature in godly living, outwardly. We've been called by God to salvation, and we've been called by God to become like him in that salvation. So as we begin to understand the nature of God, the perfection of God, the holiness of God that we sang about this morning, now we get a picture of what God has called us to. And when we get that picture, as Isaiah did, as I read this morning, of God's perfection in all of his character, and then we look at ourselves, our response is, woe is me. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. My whole character is corrupt. And we can't fix it ourselves. Only God can. Now let me point out verse 16. I want you to look at verse 16 because this is his reason why we should be holy. He says, because it is written, be ye holy for I am holy. It's not just because God is holy, we are to be holy. Paul says, because it is written. Peter is quoting from the Old Testament law. That's the only Bible they had. Okay? So people who say, well, the Old Testament isn't relevant to us in the modern-day church. Baloney. Peter's quoting the Old Testament law here, and he's quoting it as the substance for why we should be holy. If you go back to the law, especially in the book of Leviticus, six times in the book of Leviticus, God tells his people that they are to be holy because he is holy. He uses these exact words that Peter quotes here six times, word for word, in Leviticus. And so this is direct quote here in verse 16. Now, in Leviticus, who was God talking to? Israel, his people, his chosen people, Israel. Who is Peter talking to? The church. The same command applies. It wasn't just for Israel to be holy. Peter's saying, as God wanted Israel to be holy, so he wants the church to be holy. Believers. Now, remember, the Old Testament was the only Bible that the early church had. And here, Peter is quoting from the Old Testament to emphasize that God's standard hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. God's holiness was not different in the Old Testament than it is now. And God's expectation for his people was not different in the Old Testament than it is now. Holiness is still the standard that we're called to. Now, we're not Israel. The church has not replaced Israel but the standard applies the same for all of God's people. We are to be holy people, and that's the standard that God has called all of his people to, holiness. 
Now, if you look at God's standard of holiness in the Old Testament law, I I think you'll be amazed. In the Bible, the word holy or holiness occurs over 900 times throughout the Bible. 189 of those occurrences are found in the Old Testament law that God gave to Israel. More than one-fifth in four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I think God wanted to get the point across that holiness was important to his people. When you read the law, you'll see all the ways that God applies this standard of holiness. He first says that his name is to be kept holy. We read that this morning. His name is to be kept holy. That's why we are not to take it in vain. To Israel, he defined the priests as holy. They would be separated from the people. They were not to be the same as everybody else. They were consecrated to a specific purpose. And so God called them holy priests. He called the worship that they did holy. God set apart holy days. God instituted holy places. He defined holy incense that was to be used in the worship in the temple. He defined holy food. He said what a holy person was. And the list goes on and on and on, 189 times. In the law, God says, these are the things that I call holy. This is what you will do to be holy people. Now, If we don't follow that, or if Israel didn't follow what God said and keep holy what God had set apart as holy, then God said this, you have profaned what I have made holy. That's the opposite of holiness, to profane something. Now, the word profane means to defile or make common. In other words, using something that God has set aside for his specific purpose, an explicit worship and glory to him in an ordinary and common way. Nadab and Abihu suffered the consequences of God's wrath because they violated this principle of holiness in worship. I mentioned God defined holy incense. You will only use this type of incense in worship. Nadab and Abihu, right after God gives the command, come in and they have made their own incense. God calls it strange fire. And when they brought that incense before the altar, the fire of God came out of the altar and consumed them on the spot because they had made common what God declared to be holy. They came in and just wanted to do worship whatever they thought was okay. We use the word profanity to refer to using God's name in vain or cursing, which obviously is a violation of the third commandment. He says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And many times when somebody in my presence has used the Lord's name in a swear and I call them on it, most of the time their, their response is, well, you know, I didn't mean anything by it. That's exactly the point. That's what God is saying. You have profaned. You have taken the meaning, the holiness, out of my name. You've made it a common swear word. And so anything 
that God has set apart for his purpose to be used in a specific way, if we decide we're going to do something else with it or use it in a way that doesn't bring God glory, we profane what God has made holy. So to mix that which is separated as holy by God or to replace that which is separated by God with something that is just common, and you want to see what's common? Look around at the world. That's common. That's what people like. That's what people enjoy. That's what satisfies people's hearts. That's common. And so if that replaces the holiness that God has called us to, then we have profaned his name in our lives. At the end of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul explains this as it applies to a believer's life. He says, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. As saved believers, we are chosen by God for the purpose of becoming holy so that we can glorify him. Anything that we allow in our lives that contradicts that purpose is profaning God and God's purpose for us. And he says, Paul says in the end of verse 20, he says, Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, inwardly and outwardly. Everything we do is to be the glory of God. That is not the purpose of the world. Theirs is just the opposite, to glorify themselves. We are to glorify God. Everything we do should not be in worship or exaltation of self, because that's what the world does. Everything we do should be in worship and exaltation of a holy God, and it should reflect his holiness. In other words, everything that we do, Peter says, should be superior in character to what the world does on a regular basis. Now, I'm not saying we have to dress weird and not drive cars. Okay, there are certain things that in order to live in this world, we do. Jesus didn't wear weird clothing. He wore what everybody wore. But he didn't live the way everybody lived. And that's why in Philippians 4, Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Superior to what the world does. So the call to holiness is more than just for us to avoid obvious sins and blatant wickedness. It's a call to live in a way that's morally elevated and intrinsically superior to that of the world because that is what defines God's character. And that is what he wants us to become. We are to reflect the moral and ultimate superiority of God in our lifestyle in our decisions, in our life choices. And here's the challenge. How do we live a superior lifestyle in character to the world but not get proud about it? Because we have to remember it's not us that's doing it. 
We can't. That's why we have to surrender to the work of God in our lives, to the work of the Spirit who will make us holy, who will cause us and, and, and empower us and lead us to do that which is right in God's eyes, to reflect that perfect character of God as we live. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. And when we're living by the Spirit's power and by the Spirit's guidance, the fruit of the Spirit will be exhibited, that morally excellent superior fruit that can only come from God's Spirit. Our God is superior in ev- up to everything that's in this world and that is of this world. And so the call to holiness is literally a call to live in the superior nature and character of God and not in the character and nature of the world. I'm going to ask you this question as we close. Do you really believe that God's ways are superior to the ways of the world? I mean, is that something you're convinced of? Yes, God, what God says is better, what God has is better, everything that God is is better. Do we believe that? That God is in every way superior to anything that's in this world? And the question is, why do we constantly choose to go back to the world to fulfill our desires? We choose the profane instead of the holiness. We choose to satisfy ourselves instead of satisfying God. And basically, it's nothing more than a choice to exert our will over God's will. God's command to us here in verses 13 to 16 is meant to challenge us with this question. Do we really believe that what he has for us is superior to what the world has? And if we believe that, how are we going to respond? And Peter gives us the answer. Be ye holy. Become holy as God is holy. Are you ready and willing to separate yourself fully to become holy, a true follower of Jesus Christ, being made in the nature of our Savior? And if you answer next yes to that question... And it obviously starts with surrender, just as salvation does. But there is work that we must do in that surrender that God has called us to, to help us progress on that journey. So if you're interested in what that work is, come back next week. And we will look at the path of holiness and the obstacles that we have to avoid on that journey to holiness. We're out of time now. But God has called us to holiness, folks. The question is, is that truly what we strive to achieve, as Paul said? Or is it just some nice suggestion that somebody in the Bible made that might make our life better? Be ye holy, for I am holy. All right. I guess the Lord wants us to be done. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, again, we just praise you and thank you for your holiness. We know that you have, in your character, done all things well, done all things good. You will continue to do everything perfectly. And Lord, you've called us to exhibit that character in our lives. We know that we can't do it ourselves, so we need your help. And so every day, I pray that you would help us to confess to you that we can't do it, to admit our shortcomings, our limitations, 
so that we rely on you to do your work, to take us in the right direction, to help us choose the right things, so that your character of holiness is exhibited in us as your purpose is. Lord, we thank you that you've given us this direction. We thank you that you've given us this truth that can guide us. So, Lord, help us to pay attention to it. Help us to seek it out, and may we yield to the Spirit's moving and leading as he uses that truth to to mold our lives into the image of our Savior. We thank you for all you've given us in Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.